Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what shows are and are not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Freenich. Hi, Darren. Hi, Kristen. How's it going? Kristen, have I got a incredible bargain for you. What? If you give me a mere... $5,000, I can get you a private jet flying <laughs> out to a remote island that I have purchased from Pablo Escobar. Uh, it's only $5,000. This deal is going to expire soon, though. So oh, can I get your credit card number absolutely. or a check or a money order right You know what? Now? I have a Magnesis credit card, so I will be <laughs> able to uh, make this happen immediately. It comes ooh, with perks and ooh. a townhouse. Christian, that's the one that uh, makes that sound when you when you drop it on the uh, bar, right? Dink. Yeah, yeah, it's great. very it's Perfect. very fancy. So, <laughs> yes, as you uh, as you may have guessed, listeners, we will be talking about the Dueling Firefest documentaries. Uh, but first, Darren, something a little different. You want to tell us about the first show of the week? Uh, yes, I would love to. Kristen, uh, the big debut that is happening this week is I Am the Night on TNT. Uh, this is the latest addition to what TNT has suddenly called their suspense collection. See also The Alienist, which I didn't think was that suspenseful, but let's just roll with it. Uh, the show is created by Sam Sheridan and stars India Isley as Pat, a young uh, teenager uh, living as a mixed race person in the mid-60s in Nevada. When we meet her, uh, she has someone who's felt very out of place for a long time and she quickly discovers minor episode one entire concept spoiler alert she's adopted uh, she is in fact a member of a grand family from Los Angeles she goes to Los Angeles it's the mid 60s Kristen and it looks great you mm -hmm. know we're talking beaches we're talking big modernist houses we're talking corruption question yeah. mark exclamation point <laughs> uh, we're also talking Chris Pine uh, who plays a journalist named Jay Singletary uh, he is someone who is in a really bad way we first meet him uh, he's been reduced to sort of the worst levels of tabloid journalism but he wears a great aloha shirt and looks mm. fantastic when he's getting beaten up oh so good he looks he, so good when he's he, beaten up he chris pine has this incredible ability to look better and better when someone punches him so which true. happens very frequently in i am the night um kristen it, broadly this is a six episode miniseries and it is kind of in that genre of james elroy los angeles history that's also this almost kind of mystical dark story about murders some of them very much based on fact some of the characters are real life characters uh chris pine is not because no journalist has ever looked that good um, but uh, I've seen all of it uh, I gave it a B uh, you've seen uh, a little bit less of it uh, what were your kind of feelings on what you saw of uh, I am the night I mean I wish I could communicate via audio a shrug emoji because uh, as much I love Chris Pine and he was so he's really good in this role he does the sort of lovable rake element with a believable level of trauma. You know, he's a Korean War vet. He's got PTSD. He's uh, a hard drinker. He's got demons. And there are scenes between him and his uh, editor, played by Leland Orser, who is so good. And the scenes are so much fun. And I could watch those two a lot. But then when it got to the mystery, uh, Initially, the mystery seemed like it was going to be about this young girl finding about finding out about her family and some dark secrets. And then like sort of a spoiler alert. It's not a spoiler if it makes no sense. Um, there's like a devil bull. <laughs> 
and then there are orgies and people have a one guy's wearing like a meat headdress with horns and I just I, I couldn't do it I couldn't yeah, do so it Darren the, 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 the first two episodes uh, which are directed by Patty Jenkins who of course uh, everyone saw uh, her work with Chris Pine uh, Wonder Woman a couple mm-hmm. years ago the first two episodes I, I would say Kristen are a fairly straightforward docudrama of the era um, mm-hmm. there's a real sensitivity around uh, the horrible race relations of the time uh, and you know you're kind of following this character Pat who's also known as Fauna um, who really as someone who is mixed race and doesn't really feel like she belongs to any of the extremely stratified realms of her society there's this sensitivity to all of that then yes uh, episode three begins (laughs) with an eyes wide shut orgy and the first not the last appearance of a kind of symbolic devil bull it's very um, this is kind of a member of that genre that started a few years ago with True Detective and mm-hmm. Hannibal, where, where where people just have like visions of horned beasts. Yes, um, and it's it, it's it's a little all over the place. And I would say that as it goes along, that feeling only kind of continues. Um, and yeah, it's just it, it's not always entirely clear you know to what extent is this trying to be a semi-factual examination Mm -hmm. of true events and there's a character named george hodell um who is somehow related to uh, the main character and uh, he is in fact a true person but a lot of things that happen with him including seeing a devil bull you're kind of like okay we're moving more into the realm (laughs) of fantasy now and it, it, it sounds like that's the stuff that worked less well for you yeah you know it's interesting because even before it started getting all eyes wide shut I couldn't really figure out what was going on Um, like characters would have these revelations like Chris Pine would suddenly be like aha and you know dash out of a a whore's you know flop house to go do something and I was like wait what what did I miss you know he had something triggered something but I don't have any idea what's happening and I don't mind being confused as long as I feel like there's something interesting uh you know, coming. And I just, I was both confused and not interested. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. It, it's very beautiful. And Chris Pine is so, you know, likable in this uh, role and he does a great job. I just wish that his first sort of uh, TV event series had a little bit more uh, focus. Yeah, I, I think focus is definitely the operative word for what's missing in I Am The Night. Uh, what worked for me a little more is that this is just a really gorgeously produced uh, miniseries, um, you know, filmed kind of all around Los Angeles. Uh, even some of the locations just feel a little more vivid to me uh, than some of the kind of grim places in the other uh, current mystery mm-hmm. miniseries about uh, sad detective types uh, looking at you true detective um and yeah you know you kind of mentioned the character played by leland orser who's this great sort of editor who seems to take all of his meetings morning noon and night in the local tavern or, uh, or maybe multiple taverns the good old um, days of journalism exactly. where you could run your run your section out of the bar <laughs> Um, but and, and I, I will just say, I, Kristen, I have to commit uh, one of the great sins of TV criticism right now yes. when I say episode five is when it really starts to get good. <laughs> out of episode six? five, episode five out of six. I I stuck with it. Um, the last couple episodes are directed by Carl Franklin, um, who actually previously, uh, I mean, he's a great sort of f- film and TV director. Um, but uh, he directed uh, the film Devil in a Blue Dress, which is kind of another Los Angeles uh, mystery period piece. Uh, 
Um, and his episodes, uh, they're the craziest by far. Um, mm-hmm. And there's there's a trip to another place that's really interesting. And there's a sort of revelation that even if you see it coming is still kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I, it, it's this is one of these things where I find when I talk about it to people, I, I, I am forced to tell them like, hi, like you're not someone who's paid to watch all of a thing, but <laughs> but I am and I watched all of it and towards the end it got pretty good. So that's that's the sort of like half-hearted endorsement yeah. that I have to give. I am the night. I am the night debuts tonight uh, at nine o'clock on TNT. It runs Mondays, uh, six episodes, and uh, if if you stick through the first four, then let's talk about it, people, because <laughs> a lot of stuff happens in, in episode five. So give me give me give me a shout out when we get there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Darren. So our next show is also about sort of a big mess. And uh, it's actually two dueling documentaries, Netflix's Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened, and Hulu's Fire Fraud. Uh, On January 14th, shots were fired in the ongoing war of the streamers when Hulu announced that it had just dropped a surprise Firefest documentary four days before Netflix was to debut their much-hyped doc. And of course, Fire Festival was the infamous 2017 music festival that was billed as this luxury getaway in the Bahamas, but it turned out to be a complete disaster of near humanitarian crisis proportions, if you believe what you saw on social media. Uh, so the con man slash entrepreneur behind Firefest is Billy McFarlane, and the chief advantage of Hulu's doc... Uh, is that it has an interview with him. Uh, they paid him for the interview. Uh, and But the interview is, I'm putting it in air quotes, uh, I found the Netflix documentary a lot more effective in conveying the sort of low rumble of dread that got louder and louder as this event, which was basically logistically impossible from the get-go, uh, got closer. And everyone involved, save Billy McFarlane, re- realized it was going to be a total shit show. And there was a bit more focus in the Netflix documentary um, on the Bahamians who did a tremendous amount of labor for the festival and didn't get paid, including a restaurant owner who lost $50,000 and there's now a GoFundMe account uh, raising money for her because, you know, she really stands out as somebody who was a victim. She wasn't some, you know, rich white kid who lost some of daddy's trust fund money when they bought tickets. She lost $50,000 of her savings. Um, the Hulu documentary, on the other hand, billed itself as a true crime comedy, but it seemed weirdly didactic in its effort to place the whole thing in a broader socioeconomic context. All these tangents were like, let us explain to you what a millennial is and how they uh. like to look at their phones. And the interview with McFarlane was like incredibly mishandled and unsatisfying. But as you can see, I have a clear preference. Darren, what, what were your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are exactly your thoughts, Kristen. I'll be honest. Uh, I only watched about 10 minutes of the Hulu documentary and then just turned it off because uh, I just thought it seemed kind of dumb. Admittedly, it was after I watched the Netflix documentary. And as you said, that is just a great piece of panoramic journalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Netflix documentary speaks to so many people who were involved in the Fire app, who were involved in putting on this festival. Uh, yeah, as you said, the people who were there in the Bahamas who were very you know, adversely financially devastated by this in a lot of ways. Um, The Hulu documentary, right off the bat, I was a little nervous because in the first 10 minutes, there is first a brief cut to the Simpsons video game and then a brief cut to a Simpsons episode. And it's like, okay, you can only... You can only have one Simpsons clip to make yourself look smart and funny in the first 10 minutes. Two is where I kind of draw the line. But yeah, I once, um, 
once Billy McFarland walked on screen in the Hulu documentary, it just felt a little gross to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he sort of begins by talking about his origin story Ugh. and, you know, how he did this thing with the crayons. And, you know, again, I'm, I was in watching this after... or whatever. Yeah, and I, I was watching this after the Netflix version, but literally I was just like, what the hell do I care about you and your crayons, yeah. man? Like, what, and what, what individual would think that this is the direct approach to this material? It, it felt a little bit like... Um, you know, both the documentaries seem very hot on this idea of the Firefest as symbolizing so many things about right now, about Instagram yes. celebrity and social media entrepreneurship and all of this. Um, but but the Netflix one kind of goes beyond that and really shows what is the what is the economic quality of this and you know what does this look like when this just goes totally awry. And the Hulu version, it seemed to me in the first ten minutes a little more like, hey, look, we got him. He's here. Yes. Can you believe it? Yeah. Like it's 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 the difference between an interview and a, and a selfie. So, but that's again, I, I turned it off. So perhaps after that, the documentary got much more intensive. But I, 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 I don't get that vibe from what you're saying. No, I mean, I will say I think it's important to uh, note that the Netflix documentary also was in part exec produced by Jerry Inc., which were you know part of F Jerry is the uh, one of the marketing groups that worked on the Fire Fest and the app. So like both documentaries, you know are in, somewhat inextricably linked to people who were involved in the fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about, like, you got McFarland, and then they'll ask him questions, and he'll either give a very unsatisfying answer and they don't show a follow-up, or they will literally just show him not answering and then cut. Like, they won't... <laughs> like. Keep the camera on him until he says, I'm not going to answer that or until he gives you some crap answer. But they will literally, they'll ask him like a really important question and he'll just kind of be like, uh, and then they just cut to another thing. And it's, I don't, you know, if the, if there's, if the point is, well, he just didn't give us a satisfying answer. I want to hear the words that came out of his mouth, even if it was gibberish, you know, like show me that you were trying, show me that you did a follow up. Like, and that's, you know, I, it's, I get that they paid him because they, you know, A, to get him and B, to get some of his access to the, you know, archival footage and whatever else. Um, But then to just waste that opportunity was really frustrating. That said, I watched the whole thing. I, you know, I watched the first one, the Netflix one, uh, and then needed more just because it is, there is a lot of, uh, you know, it, there is definitely in both documentaries touch on this a bit of schadenfreude when you see, you know, idiot millennials with money being like, oh, I'm going to go party with Ja Rule. And they end up sleeping in a FEMA tent, you know, and peeing on the ground. Like, OK, um, I, I will admit that I enjoy that. But I do think that their Netflix didn't feel the need to uh, turn it into sort of a what we talk about when we talk about Firefest yeah. uh, think piece and that and there's yeah and, and that's and what hurt Hulu's documentary absolutely I, and I just think you know the the, the Netflix version again um it's just interesting how it's also working from a lot of this incredible archival footage of this party that Ja Rule and Billy McFarland were throwing mm-hmm. with all of their, with all the models who they'd hired to be there. And something about that footage I find just so haunting. There's there's one part in, in particular um, when the guys are all trying to tell the models, like, yeah, let's do this thing. You'll, you'll jump in the water after us. And the models are clearly just sort of like, well, like, I've been paid to be here. All I'm doing is partying. This seems like a good gig, but still, like, what is going on? And I, I just yeah. there's the, the, there's this quality to all those scenes of just like, gosh, like, 
Every, nobody on screen seems to be on the same page, and yet millions yeah. of dollars are going up in flames in front of us right yeah. now. And yeah, as you said, there is the kind of schadenfreude to that, and certainly the schadenfreude to seeing. I feel like we all kind of want to see, uh, you know, startup millionaires get their comeuppance now. Yes. And that is a big part of both of these documentaries, yes. I would, I would and, say. And, you know, he is in jail now, and Billy McFarlane, and uh, there is a moment in the Hulu documentary when they're like, so, you know, what do, what do you think about going to jail or what does being in jail mean to you or whatever? And he's like, uh, uh, well, I haven't really gotten there yet. And it, <laughs> that's like the most insightful thing about him is that like he's clearly so good at compartmentalizing everything from, you know, ethics to uh, multiple scams he's running at once to uh, the fact that he's going to be in jail and he's just not going to deal with that right now. Um, and I found that interesting. I just wanted more. Uh, moments, uh, you know, with him to show, although, you know, why did he do it? He's a sociopath. I mean, that's yeah. why he did it. And like, maybe that's not the most important part. And, you know, I'm just happy to know that the uh, Netflix documentary uh, spawned a GoFundMe for that poor restaurant owner who was so lovely. And I hope that maybe there will be some other fundraising and uh, restitution made to these other people who worked round the clock hard labor and didn't get paid yeah i mean even even if you know the sort of presence of the the jerry group yeah. turns the netflix one into kind of a bit of propaganda it just seems like there's that added effort there to show every level of person who yes. worked on this yeah whereas yeah in the hulu one i was kind of just thinking like dude you literally were paid for this and you know this interview is going to be like your testament to all of this and this is what you wore yeah this, like <laughs> this like bassist for the strokes all black like and those weird jacket. boots it's those like boots he looked foreshortened you know because it was like his feet <laughs> looked huge because he had these giant boots i don't know it was what is the what is the image you're trying to send out here man i mean like that was now is the time to put on like your sunday best yeah. okay like like let's let, let's talk to this this girlfriend of yours who says she loves oh, you so much her and, and ask her <laughs> oh god i know so. he calls her from jail at the end of the documentary he she gets a collect call from jail <laughs> Oh, prison, God. I should say. Prison. Anyway, um, Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened, is now streaming on Netflix and Hulu's Fire Fraud, also streaming. And, uh, you know, maybe there will be a third doc created by Amazon that is not, <laughs> you know, beholden to any of the uh, Fire Fraud uh, participants. But we'll see. It left me feeling a lot of things about the world. And there were multiple times, <laughs> there were multiple times watching the Netflix documentary when you're just seeing all the fire people in their planning stages, where I would just turn to my wife and say, I hate everyone on screen, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> so yes. It's, it's a curious kind of entertainment, but it certainly is very entertaining. Yes, it's a, it's a rage binge for sure. <laughs> Um, so Darren, our next show, uh, this week also is on Netflix, Russian Doll premieres February 1st, and it's about a hard drinking, hard drugging software engineer named Nadia, and she's played by Natasha Lyonne, who you may remember from Orange is the New Black, and Nadia dies one night at her birthday party. That is not a spoiler, because the whole purpose of the show is she keeps dying over and over again and re-emerging alive in the bathroom at her birthday party. And Russian Doll is kind of this comedy mystery, and it's created by Leon herself, Amy Poehler, and Leslie Headland. And while it's certainly an interesting premise and something you wouldn't really expect from the mind of Amy Poehler, uh, for some reason, I could never quite bring myself to care why Nadia keeps dying or what she can do to stop it. Um, 
And I, I found like everything seemed a little too perfectly quirky. You know, it just, everything was a lot. It was a lot. It's a, ev- yeah. Everything is a lot in this show. Quirky is the right word, Kristen. Sometimes I sort of feel that there are so many, you know, trends to try to take hold of now in television yeah. because there are 5,000 TV shows that were created since I started this sentence. But one thing I find <laughs> interesting, specifically with a lot of the sort of Netflix streamable comedies, is this feeling that I'm watching something that in the mid 2000s would have been like a garden state, you know, like it, yes. it, would, have been, it would have been in that sort of indie land geography of quirkiness and, you know, music that's a little too on the nose mm-hmm. and, you know, youngish people who are all doing something kind of creative. Um, yeah, I in watching the first episode of Russian Doll, uh, which is set very, mostly at this sort of party, it, it jumped out to me that this is probably the kind of New York show I would have loved more when I was still in New York right um, but or now, in college or in college <laughs> yeah exactly I, I you know the, the the concept that you've described I, I can see the excitement around why everyone would, would want to get involved in this like it is sort of you know edge of tomorrow plus a you know cool New York party um, but yeah I, I found it difficult to invest in it um, I, I know that uh, you know having, having seen all of it, it, it is it more of a comedy ultimately because I couldn't really decide watching the first episode whether it was kind of setting up for more of a dramatic look at this character and there's a lot of talk about her mom and things that seem more tragic yeah is it kind of on both sides of the of the genre divide it definitely gets darker and darker um you know the she meets a character named alan uh nadia meets a character named alan played by charlie barnett who um He's also going through this, and he is somebody who keeps dying, and he's dying on the night that he uh, is going to propose to his girlfriend, and then she dumps him. And uh, you find out over time that, like, this sends him into a spiral, and so he's got this sort of problematic, you know, mental health history. Nadia, her mother was you know mentally ill and she had a very troubled childhood because of it and she has a lot of guilt over that and that gets more and more uh surfaced as uh these episodes go on um i will say without spoiling it that it has like a happyish ending you know mm. and um which you know for me half the time that's all i care about like i'm just like is there a happy ending just just tell me just just tell me i'm not just is there a happy ending and if there is like fine okay and um so i just you know Natasha's performance is very like if you watch Orange is the New Black you know she has a very sort of aggressive style she's from New York and she talks like this and she's really and she says ipso facto a lot and like it's just it's very it's a lot and she's she's really going for yeah it's funny because I I guess I hadn't seen her in very much lately but yeah like I she's going for a very like New York like uh, yeah. you know, character, which maybe just is her character now. But again, like, cause I I'm more familiar with like the classic Natasha Leone stuff. So I I initially thought that uh, you know she was very specifically going for something. Um, yeah, and it, maybe it's just her, which is which is fine. But I it, mean, it it, it 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 sits strangely with the character. It's is how it's I would very it. like I what I do enjoy about this character is that like while she uh, has a lot of issues and she had a hard upbringing. She she also um, is somebody who's just like very comfortable uh, living her life in a very sort of 
DGAF fashion. You know, she sleeps around. She's a computer programmer. She works in a male-dominated field, and she's not intimidated by any of that. She's very squawky and kind of annoying, um, but she also is very... Uh, she doesn't let anyone push her around, which is, you know, that's appealing in a, in a lead character. And I think she's tempered a little bit by, uh, Alan, who is a much calmer, sweeter, like less, he's, he's got his own issues, but he's, he's somebody a little less abrasive. And so they make a, an interesting pair. I just wish that it didn't all boil down to a, a somewhat simplistic, idea, you know, toward the end, they sort of start realizing why this is happening. And like, rather than I'm not going to spoil it, but it's not something where you're like, oh, that's really interesting. You're just like, oh, okay, I guess. Yeah. You know, Kristen, it's funny, the more you talk about Natasha Leone, the more I realize, you know who she is? Like, she needs to play like the Steven Dorff character in the next season of True Detective. <laughs> yeah, like, she is. There is that, that sort of really abrasive and funny. And, you know, and I mean, this as a compliment, like, you know, the voice of a thousand cigarettes kind of yes. aspect to her role in this. And it is just like, yeah, like, I'd love to see you as a sort of the, the, the more hard boiled of a de of a detective to sim or uh, yes. something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah yeah, I, it, it sounds to me like this is the kind of show that wants to be kind of dark and in your face. And then as it goes along, it gets lighter and maybe simpler. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's certainly interesting. It's just hard that like in, in this world of, you know, a, a TV avalanche and so many new shows, interesting doesn't always cut it uh, in terms of, you know, is it worth your time? If you like her, if you're uh, like seeing people do drugs at New York parties, then uh, this is the show for you. Um, it will, it premieres February 1st on Netflix and I believe it's eight episodes. Uh, and they're, they're about half hour, which is nice actually. But Kristen, people can't watch that on Netflix. They're too busy watching the biggest show of 2019 on Netflix. <laughs> a, a show, a show that I might add, TV critic Kristen Baldwin was raving about in 2018. Thank you very much, uh, Darren. You have very kindly segued us into our TV talk segment, where we tackle some of the top trending stories in the TV industry. And this week, we're going to talk about a little show called You which premiered on Lifetime last September to a lot of critical acclaim, but very little viewership. Flash forward, Darren, to December 26, when you lands on Netflix, and suddenly everyone's talking about it. Netflix will produce season two, and it says that approximately 40 million people watched at least one episode, or to be exact, 70% of one episode of you. And now it's, you know, people are obsessed with it, and they're binging it, and they're talking about the ending. So, Darren... I am ashamed to admit that my first reaction to this is complete and utter resentment. Like, oh, okay. Okay, you Johnny-come-latelys. I have been screaming about how good this show is since September, and it's only after Netflix puts it in your face that you decide to listen. Oh, okay, well, if Netflix told you to jump off a bridge, would you? I mean, look, I know this is totally irrational, but it's how I feel. And I, I, I love it, Kristen. We need some kind of word for it. I'm sure the, I'm sure the Germans have a term for that, though, <laughs> when like you were the person who, you know, very early on in, in this case in a show's existence, you were just raving 
laughing about it and trying to get people to notice it. And really, I, I would say, unfortunately, falling somewhat on deaf ears. Mm-hmm. It felt as if when you was on Lifetime, um, it, it, it was it may as well have not been in certainly the conversation around television and, and the ratings for it were just, you know, not that great, even by cable standards. And so I I understand the resentment that you feel because it is just strange that Netflix now has this ability to we can take a show and put it on our homepage. And that is essentially the homepage for TV viewership for many people yes. all around the yes. world. Um, and for me, it's funny. It's funny what you said about resentment, Kristen, because, you know, I, I'm sure on some level we both are just excited that a show we like has been seen by yeah. more people. But I, I felt a different kind of sort of negative feeling when I read this news um, because, you know, it seems to me that the cable landscape is in just a very strange place if a very good and very distinctive new show just does not even really exist when it debuts <laughs> on right. cable um, and then suddenly becomes a, a huge hit if we are to trust any of these numbers. And listen, we, 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 we could cut these numbers in like fifths and it would still be still a pretty be impressive huge, yeah. uh, rating. Um, and that just that kind of is worrisome to me, I, I think. It seemed like even just a few years ago, some of the trade-off with Netflix, the trade-off with streaming services was kind of the Breaking Bad model of, you know, here's a great show that is on cable, uh, go to Netflix if you've missed the first few seasons yes. and watch it and catch up. And then, you know, like magic, the viewership will, you know, go back to cable and it's going to be this sort of beautiful system of, you know, handing off viewers in both directions. And now, you know, you, we should say, um, was essentially canceled or, or handed off by Lifetime to Netflix. There there will be a second season of it, uh, but it'll debut on the streaming service. And that's, that's a little troublesome to me yeah. I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure why do you it's, know why i i feel like it's it is just a little alarming the power of the netflix algorithm and the netflix queue and i i agree it's just because like you know now they have this great power what are they what what are they going to do with it in terms of like are is it are they going to become the only place where we're going to be able to see shows that have any popularity like is lifetime going to stop making scripted shows or are other you know are other cable outlets going to stop making it because it's just not worth it and then you know everything will just end up on netflix and it's not good for anything to have a monopoly yeah Um, and it's just it's especially worrisome you know on the lifetime front because you know they also had unreal which had an incredibly strong season one and then certainly had problems after that but that was also a show that you know it, it never seemed to be able to transform yeah. the conversation around it and even the excitement around it when it wasn't that great into viewership. Yeah. And ultimately, that season four debuted on Hulu. And I, as one of the 10 people who watched it, c- can confirm that season four was pretty good. And so it's just it, it's kind of a bummer to see that happening. Um, but I, I, I don't want to bring this entirely down, Kristen, because we did both watch you. And it was on it. your it, it was on your top 10 list. Yes. Um, and I'm just so excited that, you know, people are into it. Um, I mean, you know, the lead performance by Penn Badgley, we've talked a lot about how it's just, it's a perfect bit of casting. Yeah, he's so um, good. Because it, it, it's, it's great that it takes everything that was always kind of 
secretly loathsome about his character on Gossip Girl. And it basically just says, oh, yeah, like we're now acknowledging that character was sort of an awful, an awful person. <laughs> and so, you know, his role as this guy who is sort of a seeming romantic, but it's sort of romance by way of American Psycho yes. is just so wonderful. Um, but uh, And I'm excited for season two. And it really does. It's a great show to binge, I think. Uh, you know, I ended up binging it. Uh, from Lifetime just because they had sent the screeners and so I would see a big chunk at a time. Um, so I do think it fits the binge model. Um, I just, you know, I hope that it doesn't uh, dissuade uh, other networks from, you know, investing in scripted comedy. I will say for Lifetime, though, just to give them some props, they do currently have an incredible show called Surviving R. Kelly, uh, which you can watch in reruns on Lifetime, or it's now streaming on Hulu, but maybe watch it on Lifetime. Just give it, you know, <laughs> just search it. Just search it on, and then DVR it. Come on, give yeah. me, throw them a bone. I was about to say too, Kristen, that on this conversation about shows that are finding more of an audience on streaming services, uh, I, I've noticed more people are now acknowledging the existence of Lodge 49 yes. now that it's on Hulu. Uh, and I, I try to remind people about that because last year, legitimately, I would have conversations with people saying like, hey, like there's a great show on AMC called Lodge 49. And AMC, that's not a fringe no. network by any means. That's, I mean, you know, that's the Walking Dead network. Like, and people would say, oh, okay, like I'll wait for it until it's on the streaming services. And it's just like, people, you can't do that yeah. like you know surely there's some way to to um discover this so i will be i'll be resenting them when they discover lodge 49 exactly. later Kristen. all right as long as we have our you know we're allowed to have our completely irrational resentment um but it's great that uh people are watching you if you haven't watched it go to netflix watch it now then watch the fire doc and uh then go to go to lifetime and dvr surviving r kelly there and then go back to Netflix, because Kristen, uh, now it's time for a segment that we have called Now and Again. Uh, no, Now and Again is not just a wonderful short-lived series from uh, almost 20 years ago starring Eric Close. Now and Again is also when you, Kristen, or I, Darren, uh, talk about shows that we are perhaps discovering for the first time that are classics or new classics or are not shows that are brand new, um, or perhaps they are shows that uh, we are re-watching again uh, in between all of the new shows that we're checking out. And Kristen, uh, before we talk about this show, I, I have a question yes. for you. Yes. It's a deep personality question uh, that will decide everything about uh, our podcasting dynamic from here. Would you consider yourself an Anglophile? That's a good question. Yes, yes. I would, would because I am legitimately obsessed with the royal family. Uh -huh. um, I am so excited for the next royal baby. Um, <laughs> my Twitter header page is a photo of the royal family and the kids. Um, and I enjoy most... I, I watched Love Island, uh, the British reality show that had like 77 episodes. I now own a Love Island branded water bottle. So yeah, I don't even know why I paused. Yes, yes. Yes, I am absolutely an Anglophile. Unequivocally. Okay, well, I I, I love that. Because I, I have had a moment of deep realization. Because um, previously, I, I wouldn't have said I was an Anglophile. You know, I, I only watched one season of Downton Abbey. Um, and I, I, I kind of try to pay less attention to the royal family. Just because, like, I think one American should. Like, I, I think yeah. that, you know, we, we, th we thrust off the monarchy low those 300 years ago. Not 300 years ago. I know 
history, but lo, those many years ago, um, you know, you know, I should mind you now that uh, now that a hometown Los Angeles lady is uh, in the royal family, I'm all the way back in. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I do realize, Kristen, British sitcoms are so important for me, and they're so yes. key to my formation as a person. Um, I still remember quite longingly the vacation many, many years ago when I was a very young boy when it was raining outside, and so we turned on PBS and Faulty Towers Marathon uh. was on. That is kind of the formation of like my entire being is watching, you know, six episodes of Faulty Towers and being like, wow, I can't believe that this show must have run for years and then discovering, nope, it's a British sitcom. It only ran for <laughs> two seasons. Um, but uh, I, I sort of ha had reason to think about all of this because I recently discovered the fantastic sitcom W1A, uh, which is streaming on Netflix here in the States, as I will now call it as an yep. Anglophile. Uh, W1A is created by John Morton and it is set behind the scenes at the BBC, the sort of massive, all-encompassing media network in Britain. Uh, it stars Hugh Bonneville, who a lot of people will, of course, remember as Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey. Uh, mm -hmm. The show begins with his arrival at the BBC. His character, Ian Fletcher, is going to become the head of values at BBC. <laughs> now, Kristen, you may ask, what does it mean to be the head of values at the BBC? And the answer is five question marks uh, repeated over and over again for the run of the show. It is essentially almost kind of similar to, in some respects, a 30 Rock, where you're kind of behind the scenes of this very media, very corporate place, and every day is just kind of a constant state of nearly endless crisis. Yes. Um, you know, uh, all the characters around Ian kind of all represent different aspects of the company. Um, you know, the, you have people from the entertainment side, you have this great, crusty journalist from uh, the news side, and they're kind of just constantly having these meetings to try and solve what is the worst thing ever that's happening today that is taking over social media that is you know going to ensure that we don't get our royal charter back and mind you Kristen I have no idea what the royal charter is they do talk about it a lot yes um, so th there is that sort of layer of like British society to this that is a little ungraspable to me at times um, but it's just such a delightful uh, workplace comedy uh, with just incredible performances all across the board um, and uh, you know I should mention too that uh, it's narrated by David oh. He's so good. Um, he's incredible. I mean, his his narration. I, I would really just uh, you know compare it to uh, you know the great narration by Ron Howard yes. in Arrested Development, where so often I mean it, it is very functional because this show moves very quickly and the narration kind of stitches these scenes together. But he's just so droll, and it just gives this whole very wacky series this added layer of of comedy. Um, so uh, all all three seasons are on Netflix, and I we just ran through all of them very very quickly. <laughs> and I, you know, I love the titles on this show, you know, and Ian Fletcher, as you said, is the head of values. And I love that because it's so hilarious in its sim simplicity. His goal is to figure out basically what is the BBC. <laughs> and, you know, it's so perfect in this in this moment in time when all media companies are trying to figure out, OK, who are we and what do we do in the face of this endless competition and endless, endlessly fragmented audience? Wh what do we do? And, you know, so the the other the other employees have titles like trending analyst director of strategic governance <laughs> director of, of better <laughs> director of better yeah. is my favorite they have a daily damage limitation meeting like it's just crazy and it's very you know as somebody um, who has worked at both a media company and a tech company that was trying to be a media company i have to say that w1a really gets 
the disorienting level of doublespeak that now dominates any media office, you know, like there and and the incredibly like stupid ideas that get elevated. Like at one point they have meeting upon meeting upon meeting saying that the you know, trying to update the logo of the BBC saying the BBC should look more like an app. And it's like, what are you even talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And that becomes, and nobody, what's brilliant about it, because it's so maddening, and you can see Hugh Bonneville as sort of the audience surrogate trying to get his head around things. Like, nobody stops for a second and says, that doesn't make any sense. They just yeah. go full bore. It, it, it feels so beautifully set, and it captures this era so specifically, where very frequently the smartest people in the room seem to think that the best move is to listen to the person who, just by virtue of being young or on social media is you know they will throw out crazy ideas there's a great character uh shaban played by jessica hines who's the bbc brand consultant and you know everything that she throws out is just a classic bit of you 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 could easily see her working for like the fire festival yes you know? and yet everyone in the room and you, you mentioned the double speak kristen and you know just the the flow of dialogue in w1a is so fascinating um and it is literally orwellian at times like there's kind of a recurring thing where people will respond to someone else by saying yes no yes and that's kind of yes. that kind of captures how you know everyone is sort of equally unwilling to you know approve anything and disapprove of anything and it is i mean it's it creates this really fascinating effect um it, it feels to me very much almost more in some respects like a playwright dialogue yeah uh, might be um but again you know saying that this is a show that moves at such a fast pace through so such absurdly you know over, you know riotous crises that just build up like so quickly um so i i it, it it's been a great kind of discovery and it, it sounds like you kind of related to it in the same way i did as far as being like i think i've been in meetings like this yes before. <laughs> i've definitely been in, in a daily damage limitation meeting for sure i will just say that like it's just you know the brits for whatever reason are incredibly good at cringe comedy and if you have, you know, if you watched and loved the original Office, if you haven't, first of all, stop everything, stop listening to this podcast and go watch it. Like, what are you <laughs> even doing? Um, but this is, I feel like, on par with that that type of uh, workplace cringe comedy because there is a lot of, you know, cringing. There's a lot of, like, really awkward moments and a lot of really, uh, you know, just incredibly uncomfortable exchanges that only get more and more uncomfortable. But it, on top of that, uh, there's just this this really great uh, rewatchability to it too, because you almost catch the jokes like two or three seconds after they happen. And so you're like always <laughs> laughing at the, the, you know, you're always behind and because, you know, there's so much piling up that's funny visually and, and the narration and the, the performances. So I definitely think this is one that um, if you're at all interested in awkwardness, this is this is your go to. And I, I'm also putting out the word on this, Kristen, because I discovered something about this show after watching it that I had not realized while watching it. This is actually in a spinoff series of a previous series uh, that was focused on the Hugh Bonneville character. Oh, really? All the, yeah. It, it, the previous series, which is unfortunately not on Netflix, um, and I have not yet discovered a legal means to uh, watch it in this country. <laughs> um, it's called 2012. And it was sort of that's kind of why they always mention that the Hugh Bonneville character previously 
previously worked on the 2012 Olympics committee. Oh, right. um, that was kind of the core of the earlier show. I'm I am like trying to that that is my new sort of you know internet mission uh, of, of to television. It's to try and track that down. Though I, I have to assume I, I didn't understand a lot of the BBC inside references in W1A, and I have to assume everything to do with the London Olympics will be way over my head. But uh, <laughs> I highly recommend this. Uh, it is streaming on Netflix now. All three seasons are there. Uh, it's three seasons, which I think come out to about 15 episodes. Yeah, can you imagine? It's amazing. <laughs> it's a weekend. It's, it, is, it is literally a weekend, uh, and I hope everybody discovers it. That wraps it up for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts by searching EW's Best of Shows. Give us a rating while you're doing that. Give us a review. We want to hear from you. We want to know what you think. We're critics, which means, unfortunately, we have to be very open to criticism. If you have a specific <laughs> bone to pick with us, then you can do all your uh, you know, arguments and counter-arguments on Twitter. She's hanging out there. She's Kristen G. Baldwin. I'm hanging out there. I'm at Darren Franich. We'd love to hear from you. I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So goodbye.